0: All right, let's do this. Peanut if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello and welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, the talky and very all-in-the-family version of my book, Photo Work: 40 Photographers in Process and Practice. I'm Sasha Wolf. Recording today at the Bearsville Theater in Woodstock, New York. Joined today, as always, by my friend and producer, a man who couldn't face the thought of 2020 ending without having been in his own personal quarantine period. <laughs> so coming to me, to us today, from his quarantine attic, where we are all going to find out together how his COVID tests went, Michael
1: Chovendalton. Hello, Michael. Uh, hello. Hello. Well, we are all negative. Yay! <laughs> yes. It was a family COVID test. It was a family uh, quarantine. Extra- and family quarantine extravaganza. You know, my daughter was contact traced at her school. And so uh, we tried to be as responsible as possible and, and self-quarantine. And, you know, you if you get tested after a certain period of time, you can shorten your quarantine period, which is what we were trying to do. And let me just say very quickly that... Uh, we have not taken care of the testing facilities and procedures in this country to this day. Uh, it was it was not a pleasant experience. What happened? Uh, uh, it it took all day. Uh, we started at uh, eight in the morning and we finished at four in the afternoon. Oh my! Uh, God. It was just back and forth. Um, Trying to schedule four people for tests all at the same time. Lines were long. You know, I stood outside for an hour and a half. And, uh, yeah, it's just amazing that in December of 2020, the end of 2020, after all this time, it can still be such a nightmare just to get tested.
0: I'm sorry. That's awful.
1: Yeah, but... We did it. We're all negative. So that's good good news. And, you know, we're lucky. I have insurance. I have a job. And, you know.
0: Yes. Yes. That is good. And uh, so we're recording on December 29th. So we're about to give the boot to 2020.
1: (laughs) Yes. Please.
0: (laughs) Don't let the door hit you on the way out. (laughs) (laughs)
1: or go ahead.
0: It's not you, it's me.
1: (laughs) No, it's you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely you. It is definitely you, 2020. We are not into you, man. No. We are not into you. So Michael, what did you think of today's episode, which of course is a conversation with my friend, great photographer, Doug Dubois?
1: Yeah, this, you know, when you said you were recording with Doug I was I was pretty excited about it because I am a fan of his work of course of his book My Last day at 17. And I think this is one of those episodes where you really where the guest really allows themselves to be vulnerable. and when Doug is talking about that work and making that work and interacting with the people and Russell Heights, I mean he's just so open and honest about it and it is just fantastic to listen to because, Not only was he concerned about, you know, issues of trust and how people are going to be represented while he was making the work, but now he's even sort of reconsidering what that looks like now that the teens are adults and, you know, the responsibility of all of that. And he takes it so seriously.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just, I love this conversation. You know, I represent Doug. I really, I'm so crazy about him and his work. I just love talking to him just in normal life, you mm-hmm. know without recording, and I think we we both got into that headspace where we almost forgot we were recording. You know, we were just having this really wonderful conversation, and you know there's just nothing like that uh, you know mm-hmm. you know it's its own type of thing when someone is willing to go there with you,
1: absolutely while
0: yeah. we're recording to sort of just have it not be about. I don't know, like sort of stock answers or art speak or things you think you should say or art theory, or but you know is really willing to just really have a conversation about their artistic life. And you know, I interviewed the other day for the the next episode. Uh, I interviewed Christine Potter, and we had a, a similar conversation. And mm. and I'm I'm just it's so gratifying. I mean, it's just so satisfying. So. You know I'm glad you said that because I I feel the same way.
1: And and you have a a really lovely conversation about influence too.
0: You know, everyone knows at this point that I love that conversation. Um so <laughs> let me let, yeah, let me just spell a few things out for folks. So Doug, you know, I had asked people I think in the last episode to you know, make sure they're familiar with 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 Doug's work. I always ask people to make sure they're familiar with the work of the the guest, but um, just give you a few things to check out if you want to before you listen that Doug mentions. A couple of photographers, Jim Goldberg, and he particularly references his work Raised by Wolves, and Rich and Poor, which are two sort of seminal bodies of work of, of Jim Goldberg's really incredible work, really mm-hmm. worth looking at if you're not familiar with it. He references Larry Sultan, another giant of photography, who you should know, you you out there in podcast <laughs> land, and also we talk about the comic, the comic right. strip part of his book from My Last Day at Seventeen. So, you know, I realize that if you go to my website or Doug's website, you're not going to see those comics. You'd have to actually have the book. I do recommend people get it. It's one of my favorite books in the world, books of photography. But just just to explain, there are comic strips. In the book that were created for the book, it's really an incredible addition. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that's what he's talking about there. And I did realize that I invented a word, so just um, (laughs) I want to please don't go and look it up;
1: you won't find it, and that (laughs) or just start using it. You know,
0: (laughs) yeah, just go ahead, do it, people. I it seems I invented the word directly. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm such a wordsmith. Um, so, okay, the word directly does not exist. Go ahead and just be boring and use the word directly.
1: See what I care. Um, oh, directly just has an exuberance to it. It
0: is, it. it is. It's exuberant. That's exactly right. Oh, Michael, I love you. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. So... Yeah. I mean, I I I love it. I hope people love this episode. And um, like I said, we have Christine Potter coming up next. We have Zora J. Murph. A lot of really great guests on the horizon. So keep listening and, yeah. and keep DMing me and Michael with questions. We're not answering any. We haven't answered any for a few episodes, but we'll get back to that if you want to send in questions and and comments are really helpful. Let us know that you're enjoying the show as usual. Please do not let me know if you're not enjoying the show. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, listen, Michael, I wish you and all our listeners really a very, very healthy and happy 2021. And I hope it. it's well, it can't get worse, I don't think. I mean, I guess it, it could, I think the next month could be sort of rough, but then hopefully yes. there's a light yes. at the end of the tunnel.
1: Yes. Well, happy new year to you, Sasha. And also, you know, thank you for bringing me in on this show, which has brought me a little light in 2020.
0: Well, the show is cyclical because this is a chicken or egg. <laughs> First of all, you're welcome. And thank you. Without you, I don't think there'd be a show. So we, we, we did this together. And for better or worse we've created <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've created this little being, and um yeah, no i 'm really really proud of the show, so thank you so much for everything, and you know it 's a blast doing this with you, so um, oh you too, even though I now refer to it as a runaway train, but um <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I, it's like I'm running down the tracks and trying to grab onto the railing that's in the la, you know at the end of the last car. Um, so I've been I'm watching a, a lot of old movies.
1: I was gonna say I'm on top of it, hopping from car to car. Oh, <laughs> you're, an, the uh, oh, you're in an action movie. <laughs> that's right.
0: <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, it's I'm like in a Preston Sturgis movie or something. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, All right, Michael. Well, listen, thanks again. And if you don't mind, please take it away.
1: My pleasure. And here's your conversation with Doug Dubois.
0: Doug Dubois, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for, you know, being my guest today.
2: Well, thank you. I'm sitting on a on an uncomfortable chair in a uh, sound booth that is plexi that is boxing me in.
0: That sounds like something out of I don't know. It sounds very 1960s when I hear like a plexiglass booth. that just you know.
2: It actually, yeah, it has that look actually.
0: <laughs> um, and you are up at Syracuse University, you're in right. a sound I'm, booth, yeah.
2: Down in a basement at the university. Yep.
0: You're suffering for the podcast, and I do appreciate I that. You and I already talked about the fact that both your where you're recording and where I'm recording, where I always uh, record up in Woodstock, they're both extremely cold because we can't have heating sounds and ducks and whatnot. You know, you and I are both in New York State, where we just had this massive s- snowstorm. I think it's about 17 degrees here right mm-hmm. now. So my recording studio. Could double as a meat locker. Uh, yes, but I've got my long johns on. So, Doug, I ask all uh, guests to to just start off by putting themselves <laughs> in the context of their lives. So, if you could just you know talk a little bit about how you got to where you are today, sitting in a cold sound booth at Syracuse University, talking to me. That would be awesome.
2: Oh, I got here. I I drove uh, from daycare, dropping my son off, Um, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, barking and walking, really. No, how did I get here? Uh, You mean, how did I begin photographing, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I had a best friend. His name was uh, Brooke, and... um, He got into it first, I believe. Uh, His father got him a camera. And then we were rummaging around a closet uh, in my house. I'm not exactly sure why. And where was
0: this? This is in
2: New Jersey. We are in uh, suburban New Jersey. And um, I stumbled upon a camera case and found an old camera of my father's, which was a rangefinder, an Agfa rangefinder that I think he bought. Nice. Yeah, it was quite a nice camera. Um and I think he bought it when he was in the navy. And the shutter didn't work, but after pleading a bit, uh he fixed it and it worked for a while. And that was my first camera, but it was largely uh with my friend Brooke and and in high school I became the sort of yearbook photographer. I was too scared to talk to anybody unless I had a camera with me. <laughs> And that was a big part of it. The camera kind of gave me courage and an excuse to go places and, you know, engage people because I was painfully shy in high school. A small group of nerdy friends, you know, didn't didn't go out on dates or anything like that. But uh, I tried to make photographs.
0: And then from high school?
2: From high school, I went, you know, I... I don't know how I found out about Hampshire College, which was a, you know, a school that was less than ten years old, but had a very innovative curriculum. No grades; you sort of created your own program of study. And um, for some reason, I felt this was the place for me. And the little did I know, because I, you know, I I didn't know that much about photography. I I had read sort of Beaumont Newhall at the time. And all, but that there was a pretty amazing uh, photo faculty there. It was founded by Jerome Liebling and um, Elaine Mays. And there's a new faculty there, Abraham Ravette, who's probably better known as a filmmaker, a quite amazing filmmaker. And these were my mentors, and I was in the right place at the right time. I was very lucky. And yeah, was, that's amazing. Yeah, it was it was some really great people that I got to work with right out of the gate in college. And so I I majored in photography, but it, you know it was a, just a BA that I invented myself with yeah. you know the help of these people. And you know it's a great school. Uh, it's struggling now, but it's a great school, and it was it was right for me.
0: And then you went to graduate school. And
2: then I went to graduate school. I applied. Uh, yeah, I, I got I got turned down by every school I applied to except the Art Institute in San Francisco, which, again, an amazing sort of stroke of luck. Uh, Larry Sultan was teaching there, and I didn't know who he was. It wasn't all that well-known at the time, and I had just started photographing my family, and he had just started photographing his, and there we are. I got lucky again. And yeah, that's
0: it. that's really incredible. Yeah, huh?
2: and and Jim Goldberg was also in the city. I mean, they were very very good friends, and he was around working on uh, Raised by Wolves, and I had seen Rich and Poor when I was in college. I think it had just come out right around the time I was, or right before I applied to grad school, and um, I stole his idea. Well, it wasn't really his idea, but but I began emulating the way you know asking people to write under their photographs. And so mm-hmm. that's how I worked with my family. Initially, they all wrote, you know, a little paragraph or a little story underneath their portraits. And um, I got to, you know, certainly meet Jim and sort of confess that I stole his idea. And um, <laughs> we, became fr- we became friends. And I was, again, very lucky in a really good group of people in San Francisco. And there were a lot of... By the
0: way, once again proving the point that most people are flattered when you tell them that you're sort of copying something that they do, as opposed to being mad. But anyway, go on.
2: Right, right. He, he. Uh, yeah, I actually, <laughs> in fact, if I remember correctly, uh, it was at an opening where I first met him, and at the opening, I I told him that I that I had been stealing his idea, trying to do it, and I remember asking him, you know, I said. I said, I can't get the writing you get. How do you get people to write the things you get? And he, you know, he told me you had to work with people. You know, they they worked on it together, and that never occurred to me. I naively <laughs> thought people just spontaneously yeah. spewed this brilliant stuff underneath their pictures. And of course, you know, my parents and my sister and everything—they did the best they could, but um, it was nothing we really worked on, and. That was a revelation. And then he said he was uh, on a date that night, and his girlfriend was very impressed that I came up to him and said that I was stealing his ideas and all that. So, as you said, it does. It works. It's a sort of flattering thing. And so, um, told me that years later.
0: By the way, you know, you're sort of teasing yourself about not realizing that you needed to work with people. But that to me is just one of those things where it's like, you know, once you sort of figure out the way. And in this case, Jim told you, you know, it seemed like, you know, a "duh" moment, like, well, of course, but I could totally like see that you wouldn't that wouldn't occur to you. You know, I mean, it's like, these are just sometimes it's not even a blind spot, really. It's just, uh this is just part of muddling through, isn't it? Like, you just oh. muddle through until you're no longer muddling, all of a sudden, you have an epiphany. And yeah. You know, and, sometimes someone helps you with that
2: epiphany, and other times you can't do it yourself. But absolutely. And some, you know, and one measure, not the only measure, but one measure of I think great art is that it appears effortless and inevitable. And so that its process is somehow hidden in a in a way. Um not that like like a you know, brush marks. You you know, you look at brilliant brush marks, but the most elegant ones seem so graceful and simple, but they're not simple to do. And, no, and his, not. and rich and poor had a kind of authenticity. I mean, it felt authentic in the way it was put together. And, and, you know, at the moment that it came out in the early 80s, and that it just felt that way. You know, it felt like those were honest, straight up, spontaneous reactions to their images.
0: You know, one of the most sort of important moments for me when I was young and I was writing films was uh, I saw an interview with John Irving in which he talked about, and I'm not going to get this exactly right because this was so long ago and I just don't remember, but whatever I say now will not be hyperbole, like it was so over the top. He said that it took him... He could take like a day to work on three sentences or a paragraph because he would be, you know, going over and over again each word. And, you know, to make sure it was right, whatever right means. But I just remember just feeling so much better. Like, I got it. Like, I was like, oh, it is supposed to be really, really hard to create something out of nothing. It is. You know, and sometimes you get lucky and you have, and this, you know, happened to me at various times, where you have these incredibly almost lucid, trippy moments of creation where things just pour out. And those moments are really glorious. Like you feel like you've been touched by God. I mean, they're just so amazing. But those are the exception to the rule in my experience, and most of the time you're agonizing and suffering over the creation and over your your choices. Does that does oh, you relate yeah. to that or does that sound crazy?
2: No, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I mean, uh, a photographer like Jeff Wall is is absolutely at the other end of of, you know, at least what Jim Goldberg did in the 80s, um certainly. And there's still an, an inevitability about Jeff Wall's tableaus and, you know, highly worked, highly worked images that sort of create a world and a whole that's, you know, so beautifully contained. And again, uh, supposedly he spends like crazy amounts of time get every, getting everything just so. So it's not, it it's, it's not about uh, effort. It's not like, you know one or the other there's too much effort or too little effort it's just yeah that the miracle of of a kind of effortlessness that comes across i think is really important and amazing
0: so let me ask you this is may seem like a trick question it's not i said this to you before we started recording that i feel like i'm always defining other people's work on the podcast and in my life as an art dealer and I represent your work. So I'm often defining and, and describing your work to clients that I'm trying to sell it to. But I want to ask you what type of photographer, you know, you think of yourself as.
2: Um, largely insecure. Um, (laughs) but, you know, you're in, you're in good
0: company. Yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) Um,
2: you know, I, I you know my my uh, training, if you want to call it, or my education, it certainly came out of a, a a sort of documentary mode. But that that term, I I just find so problematic now yeah. and sort of overdetermined that I that I don't really like to use it. You know, I might say documentary esque or something, some weird equivocation on it, because I you know I break the rules in terms of, if you were a journalist and such, in terms of inventing and posing and once the technology arrived, using also digital tricks to um, combine images. So in that sense, it's not documentary, but it has um, similar aims in that everything that I do, I, I do believe I'm aiming at a truth and so if i combine two or three images into one it's because it's a stronger statement of of what i'm trying to say than any particular frame and i feel that any particular frame is just as arbitrary as three frames combined and so those are those are you know that's that's my sort of groundwork i i don't know if that's uh, any longer considered a documentary approach. I don't really know. I'm terrible at, at inventing things out of whole cloth. You know, put me in a studio and I, you know, I pretty much have a panic attack in terms of building up an image. But put me in a place where I can bounce off of what's in front of me, even if it involves moving the furniture all over the place and taking things off the wall and whatever, I'm in a much better, you know, I can function.
0: When you're taking things off the wall and doing this sort of thing to arrange a shot, though, I mean, these are aesthetic choices. I mean, I think of you, you're really known now for, you have more than two, but you're really known for two very large bodies of work, All the Days and Nights, which is about your family, and My Last Day at 17, which is about young people sort of on the verge of adulthood in a sort of not downtrodden, but certainly not wealthy area in Ireland. And, you know, to me, the jump aesthetically from all the days and nights to my last day at 17 is, is huge. So when in, you say- In what like, way? I mean, I think of my last day at 17 as one of the most gorgeous bodies of, of work, period, the end. I mean, all the days and nights is, is grittier. It's much more, the palette is way more subdued. It's not as, there isn't as much repetition as there is in my last day at 17, which you see gesture repeated over and over again. You certainly, your color palette is so consistent. It, it just hangs together in this, to me, in this incredibly tight, tight, tight way. And All the Days and Nights feels looser to me and grittier. To me, there are photographs in My Last Day at Seventeen that are just so heartbreakingly beautiful. I mean, heartbreaking because of content, but you have that in your earlier work. But heartbreakingly beautiful, the aesthetics of the photograph, you know, is just sort of astounding. That's how I feel about it. Do you see that? Does this connect with you, or do you just think I'm being like... Um...
2: No, it's really wonderful. I mean, it's really nice nice to hear what you're saying. I don't know if I ever thought of the two bodies of work quite that way, but I can see it, I mean, in that, you know, the work of my family, it's, you know, 20-plus years of work, so the earliest pictures are, you know, my really, some of my earliest attempts at a serious photograph. I'm in my mm-hmm. early 20s, and I'm just figuring things out. And the later ones, the most, you know, in that book, which were done in the sort of early 2000s, I'm beginning to do work in a mode that um, I used when I went to uh, Ireland. So I'm yep. working with a big camera, I'm lighting things. Yep. Uh, the portraits that I would make of my parents or, you know, my mother or my sister were often done in a way that, you know, in a very cinematic way in the sense that I would light the scene, test it, and then ask my sister or my mother to come in and pose. Um, And I began to make photographs that way. My father, I remember him saying once, uh, one of the later pictures, he goes, it used to be so simple when you made pictures of us. (laughs) And now it's like, it's like... (laughs) a whole production. I said, yeah. So, uh, and that's the way I worked largely in Ireland. Not always. You know, a lot of the photographs were also made sort of in the moment, but many of them, yeah, were elaborately sort of, well, not elaborately. I didn't use a lot of gear, but were staged, yeah.
0: Yeah, but I'm not even thinking about, I mean, I guess to me, palette is the really huge Mm -hmm. difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're so, it's, um, my last day at 17 is just so color forward on um, those repeating colors that are just to me really important. So even pictures where I feel like there wasn't as much setup or maybe you didn't make a drawing of it as you did with some before you shot it that you, I could imagine you still saying like, you know what? can you actually come over to this wall because there's a little pink here or a little blue, that pink and blue that sort of repeats over and over again, like I could just imagine, that you were just constantly conscious of these things. I mean, because it feels like it has that level of authorship to me.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm sure it was. I mean, it, it was also lucky in that the neighborhood, Russell Heights, had. I mean, they were largely not exclusively, but largely council estates. And I don't quite know why, but every house was kind of a different color, and they were all fairly bright. Wonderful colors. Yeah, I'm not quite, yellow and yeah, you know. and um, it's kind of a marvel. And, yeah, um, and I and I purposefully tried to photograph in sort of not the usual overcast Irish light because I was I wanted to use the light to create a bit of a, a fictional space, uh, the space of of youth. You know, when when the world is big and in this neighborhood even if it is maybe not the you know maybe slightly dingy and it's really raining more often than not and cloudy um i was going to make it kind of sunny and have a warm kind of light and all of that because i wanted it to be part of a kind of imagination that time of your life
0: do you feel ever self conscious about the amount of authorship that's in that work as opposed to it being a documentary project. And let me tell you one reason I'm asking. One of the most consequential decisions to me in that body of work is that you leave out all the adults, So, <laughs> so which is a big thing. I mean, it's not like they just m- magically weren't there. You just don't photograph them. So it's like child land. And yet, even though I represent you and we know each other pretty well, and I know the work really well, and whatever. I I also have read a lot of interviews you've done and whatnot, and you don't mention that that often. And it, it sort of just st- has struck me that is it is it me? Am I feeling like the work is more author than it is? I mean, there are certain things that you you do offer up that you you, you know you talk about, like. Right? that you did make drawings and that there are some composite pictures and that, you know, you did have to ask the kids to stand here or do this or do that and that there was a certain amount of collaboration. But I also feel like that I wonder if there's a part of you that isn't entirely comfortable with the amount of authorship that's in the work.
2: You know, no, I'm not uncomfortable with it. I know that I... The the images that, that tended to be rejected are the ones that feel over overworked, if, mm-hmm. if that's you know, in and, and in that sense, they're maybe over authored. <laughs> I'm I'm probably using it in a different sense than you mean. I never I never wanted to present the work as authorless. I mean, I was also under the sway of a lot of Irish contemporary writing, which I read all the time when I was there, and otherwise I began to read a lot of Irish writers and was interested in their voice and how they sort of spoke of their world. And these writers are all, you know, they're all fiction. I wasn't reading any nonfiction. And so that was my, that was my frame for seeing, you know, and I think these writers write the truth about what it means to be in Ireland, what it means to be Irish. And so that's that's where I came from I came from the maybe the truth of fiction and and that's the way I sort of think of documentary if that makes sense you know it can be all there but maybe it needs a little nudge you know and that to me is fine you know again I don't pretend to be a journalist I'm not trying to be a journalist when I when I do assignments I don't do those things or if I do them I ask permission before or I tell them afterwards, I did this. Is that okay? Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Uh, but I, I'm not looking to be called out as a journalist that fakes the smoke or whatever. Right. You know, I'm not interested in that. I, mean, I understand the different contexts. But, you know, it's it's definitely my book. So, yeah, I claim authorship for good and bad, you know. I have to take my hits uh, as well. If I get called out on something, I have and, to own, I have to own it.
0: Of- getting called out, like, how does that work then for you when you go in and you you make a body of work that becomes really well known of a group of young people? And it's, it's about you, and it's about them. And, you know, you try and find that places where those things meet in the middle, which I think is sort of what you've been saying, right? It's part your inner life and part the life they're presenting to you as your collaborators in this project, but do they, you know, how do they feel about the work as they grow and and the years go by? What's 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 your relationship or what's their relationship to the work?
2: Uh, well, there's a couple things. I mean, you know, I tried to put that dilemma, maybe um, tension. Within the book, so that's why the, you know the ending of the book is, is the book ends with an argument with Aaron about the last photograph in the book, and what it means to her and what it means to me, and why I think it should be in and why she thinks it shouldn't be in. And one of the things she said that's, you know, really um, profound and smart, and I had to respect, because once she said that, it wasn't vanity. That, you know, her problem with that image had nothing to do with being vain about seeing herself. It had to do, and she says it quite clearly, that she doesn't want to look back at that time in her life in 10, 15, 20 years. She knew it was bad. She doesn't need the reminder. She doesn't want it at the end of the book. And that is the risk that all all of uh, those kids took um, at the time. And that risk is always there. Their lives may change and I may be showing something that, you know, I don't realize speaks to something that may not be too great for them and may change, you know, years down the road. So there it is. I don't know that there's any way around that except to try to be honest about it, which is why that book ended that way and that it's collaborative and my perspective is different than the people in the picture. You know, and that's always happening because that was also uh, in the work on my family. When I talk to my father and, you know, I I write about his perspective and looking at the images and mine and what he sees and what I see, that's always there in photographs. And photographs change meaning all the time. They change meaning over time.
0: Let me ask. Let me just say one thing. I was just thinking about whether to say this or not. But I I just want to say that, you know, for the listeners, like you are very sensitive to the way the the kids—they're not kids anymore—but the way your collaborators from um, my last day of seventeen feel, and I know this because you've asked me not to show certain photographs, and because you know certain people have been uncomfortable with one or two images here and there, and so we've we've stopped showing them. I may mean, I hope that's okay that I'm saying that, but I mean it. To me, it just sort of speaks to your you know, sensitivity and to the ongoing collaboration, really, or collaborative sort of spirit.
2: Yeah, it does. I, I mean, you know, but I I make mistakes. I mean, I I think we had probably maybe six months ago or less than a year ago that I got a phone call, oh, I don't know, ungodly early, like maybe 5.30 in the morning. My phone's buzzing, and it's Roy Sheen, who, uh, who I photographed quite a bit, in Ireland, and she just w- went off about how someone had sent her a clip of a lecture, a talk that I gave, and it was this, you, know, tiny little fragment where I spoke of the difficulty between Aaron and Kevin. and you know, they had a child together, and Kevin is uh, Shin's brother. And I mentioned that, you know, and she took offense to it and it was taken, you know, again, sort of out of context of the whole, the whole talk. But, you know, what she said and she goes, you know, she said, you know, we trusted you. We trusted you. Why did you badmouth my brother? And, and he trusted you. He told you things. And, you know, she wasn't wrong. She wasn't wrong. You know, I, I. I said, Shin, you know, you know that I said more than that, and I talked about how he has developed into, you know, uh, what he's doing now and that they've figured out a way to co-parent and that, you know, I, I said that Kevin was working and, you know, things like that. But those were tough times. And it took us a while <laughs> to sort of work through it. But I, you know, if I had my way, I wouldn't have said that. You know, I think it was indiscreet. Um, and I made a mistake, you know. I made a mistake. Unfortunately, it's out there on the internet, mm-hmm. and um, so people in that town will glam onto that. And you know, again, I don't blame them. And that's the way we are now. You can't, you really, you can't take anything back. It seems in certain contexts. Does and that make
0: you feel gun shy about doing another project like that at all?
2: No, no. Just uh, more cautious when I'm doing something like we're doing right now. <laughs> um, about what I say. And I still could say something stupid and not so great, but... We won't um, let you do that. Yeah.
0: Although, well, might get mad at you for using her as an example. Though. I
2: know. It's yeah. true. It's
0: true. <laughs> we'll have to... Uh, we can bleep her name out. And I mean that seriously. So let me ask you uh, about getting away from the sort of bigger issues for a second and more to process. So... A lot of photographers that I work with anyway and that I talk to reference paintings or painters as, as influence um, on their work, or there's like an intended historical connection that they're trying to make between a famous painting or a style of painting and their work. You reference the 400 Blows, the 1959 uh, Truffaut film, very famous Truffaut film, as a reference for a picture that you made for My Last Day at 17. So I was wondering, because you and I actually haven't talked about this much. I was surprised when I read that. Um, not surprised, but I, I didn't know that. Um, is film a big influence on you in general? And if it is, is it sort of the aesthetics of like a, a freeze frame, or is it the the narrative element? Because when I think about The 400 Blows, which is about a sort of troubled youth, in the bigger picture is sort of about you know, the the vulnerability of certain youth in, in France at a particular time and, and sort of social injustice, it, it seems like it connects in some ways thematically to my, my last day at 17. So I didn't know if that was intentional or not.
2: Yeah, well, it yeah, it does thematically. But the context in which I sort of talk about it is a, a little more um, along the lines of at least in this particular instance, a freeze frame, and that you know the four hundred blows right. ends famously on a freeze frame, and it's yep. um, the protagonist uh, who finally gets to see the ocean after he ran away from I think the reform school that he was in, and um, you know turns to the camera, stares out. Now that he's dipped his toe into the water, and he's really got nowhere to go, and um, that face is really powerful. And I was photographing a party and, and a bunch of kids in a, a sort of bush drinking, as they called it, uh, along the ocean in, in Ireland. And uh, we had we had already established this kind of tradition that I make would make these close up portraits at some point during the party, and the ocean was behind them, and it was absolutely the last frame of the four hundred blows. But I, you know, I've been collecting. Film frames, I haven't done it in quite a long time, but for a while, once I sort of figured some of these things out, uh, that I began working and setting up pictures more cinematically is I I collected five folder after folder of frames from films on a, on a drive, because um, I used to watch, you know, I'd watch them on DVDs and just do screen grabs over and over again. And those became ways, uh, you know, guidelines for me to make pictures and usually didn't use them explicitly, but every once in a while I did. And then I could pull up my laptop and say, I want to make this picture. And so I'd like you to be like this and we'll try that. Inevitably it goes somewhere else, but it gives uh, a direction. It's a way to direct someone to look or turn or pose a certain way. And one of the first ones I did was with my um, my nephew, Spencer, was is a picture of, of him lying on the floor. My sister's uh, hand uh, is over him, and that was taken from a film. I'm going to forget the name of the film, but it was taken right out of one of those frames, and we, that was our starting point. So I learned a lot from films, from looking at them closely and watching them over and over, and then grabbing a frame and then looking at the frame and thinking about it. And all those frames are highly narrative. So narrative just sort of comes along with it as well. How does that image sort of either drive the narrative or convey certain ideas that the film is speaking about?
0: Can you talk about narrative in your in your work? Because it's such a sort of, you know, as someone who works with photographers and is always talking to a lot of different photographers. You know, this is like one of the things that was really fun. I should have asked this question in the the book Photo Work. You know, it's like one of those great things where some people are like, no, narrative has no place. And, you know, people are so certain and they're set in their ways. Narrative has no place in still photography. And then other people who think, of course, that narrative is a beautiful part of, of still photography. So can you talk about, because, you know, you are, to me, I think, you know, extremely narrative um, photographer.
2: Well, yeah, well, you know, photographs are fragments, so fragmentary. Um, so the narrative is more suggestive than, let's say, explicit or com- mm-hmm. certainly complete, you know, and so, and, there, and the narrative works in several modes. There's uh, some kind of narrative implied within the image that, oh, You know, you look at the image and, you know, you begin to create a story for what is happening, you know, within the frame. And then as you start to put pictures together, going from image to image, especially in a book, another level of narrative occurs as you, you know, essentially turn pages and you connect one page after another. Um, You know, I I like, you know, I find that the weaving of those narratives together – and the fragmenting of them, and how they sort of suggest and bounce off each other, really uh rewarding i mean I mean that's I'm always thinking about that. I'm always thinking about that, and um have been doing that for a long I think from the get go i I really do I don't know that I knew I was doing that, but I was compelled to make images that felt like they were a moment in a, a much larger story. And even, you know, even though I make portraits, I, I, I do them in settings that suggest a time, a moment, uh, a context. But what it suggests, generally, I like that to be outside of the frame, not in the frame. And is it
0: also sort of inevitable when you're working on projects over many, many, many years? And my last day at 17, I think, was five years. Is that right? And your yeah. your family was t- 20 years. So. I mean is it is it inevitable that there's going to be narrative sort of implied because you're seeing people change?
2: Certainly. Yeah, that's that's inevitable. Um if you see the same person over a period of time, that will just the aging itself is a narrative and you know and how the aging is sort of manifests itself on you know everyone's body is a narrative. Mm-hmm. We we read into that. And so Absolutely, absolutely. And also, I think, again, how uh, photographs, their meaning changes over time is also a narrative. And so whenever you begin to put them together, whether it's five years later, or 10, 20, 30 years later, that shift is because you will use the images differently, part of the story as well, um, the context you build for it which will be a very different context from the from the from what was most likely in your head at the time of its making. And I think that difference, that shift is really interesting, really complicated, and really important to try to maybe not fully articulate, but somehow reference within the work.
0: Is there ever a point, and I think that this is sort of connected to what you're just saying, maybe tangentially, but is there ever a point where you know you're done? You you know you really know you're done. It's it's there's no more sort of doubt.
2: Oh no, man! I'm too insecure to have uh, uh, never have doubt. I I never really know that I'm done. And certainly with my family, uh, I began to say to make the same picture over and over again,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and that that's one sort of classic sign that you're done. In Ireland, I think I was overstaying my welcome as a photographer. Not mm-hmm. necessarily as a person, but as a person who was making pictures and asking for pictures. Yeah. Um, that I had sort of burned people out and um the neighborhood and my and my sort of presence in it as the photographer, it had reached a certain point that yeah, yeah, people were kind of avoiding me. Um and and, and I would have to I would have to, you know. And again, I could...
0: How could anyone avoid you? You're yeah, so yeah, endearing. Uh, no. Oh, very...
2: <laughs> they just tell me to fuck off as... <laughs> oh, they avoid in, a, me. In, a,
0: in a great Irish accent.
2: Uh, yeah, they do. Uh, they did. And and that's fine. Um, but... and Well, and I, I also knew that if I was to work through that, and you can work through those mo- moments, you can stick it out. Yeah. Um, and to do that would be uh, another five years before I think I found the second chapter or whatever you might want right. to call it. Right. Um, no, and, really I, and I point. wasn't ready to, I, I don't think I was quite willing to do that, you know.
0: Well, it didn't have to be the 7-Up series. Right, right. right. So for people who don't know what I'm talking about, you'll have to look that up. So we're sort of, you know, coming to the end of our time here, but I have a, a, a few more questions. Here's a big one do you think about your audience when you're making work or or do you have a, a feel for who that is does it circulate in your mind at all i guess that's connected to two other questions which is you know who do you make work for and and why why do you photograph like what is the value in it sorry those are big questions and you can answer none of them or all of them
2: um usually what when i'm making work or at least when i Uh, start to do it, I'm just thinking about myself, I think, in the sense that, oh, this is interesting. Oh, I think this is interesting or this is fun or, oh, that was, you know, that looks like a good picture. I want to make more of those. And, you know, that's, that's very much a dialogue, I think, with myself. And then as any given project or group of images grow, then you're like, well, you know, what do I do with them? And once you start to put it together, then I think, at least for me, audience becomes really critical. And there's two audiences, or at least there's two responsibilities to audience, and that is to the people that I'm photographing and how they may see what I am putting together. So, you know, my family, there was certainly my family. And then um, the people that may see that work and interpret those people in a certain way, and that's you know that's a tricky calculus and one that i I think about a lot uh, whenever I either put to, a book together or an exhibition so the Irish work had to speak to the community that it came out of as sort of hopefully successfully as uh, somebody who you know is an outsider who didn't come from a neighborhood like that, or didn't know much about Ireland. In many ways, the um, the comic served as a sort of bridge between those two worlds. And the comic speaks largely, I think, directly, speaks directly without really any um, kind of translation, if that makes sense, to an outside audience. So the the language is very much the language of the neighborhood and the stories come directly out of the neighborhood, although we shifted and changed them. And um, Patty, who illustrated and we worked together to write the comic, you know, is Irish. And, and, and while not from that neighborhood, certainly has a real connection to the stories we were creating and inventing and using. And the comic speaks, uh, you know, I had, there was somebody in the neighborhood, you know, I I didn't show the comic to anybody, including the publishers, um, until it was nearly finished, well, until it really was finished. But I did show it to one person, a couple people in Ireland. We did send PDFs. And one comment was, Why do you have so many photographs? <laughs> I like, you Well, know, they really <laughs> like the comic. Um, they wanted more comic. Um, and, and, they are good. And, and I was like, Because that's, that's sort of. Th- their voice. That was the, their, their story. And it's an interesting, I wouldn't call it a litmus test, but it's an interesting check on who's looking at the book, how or whether they respond at all to the comic. A lot of people tell me, you know, I don't really like the comic. I don't think it's really necessary. And that's because I don't think it's quite understood. And certainly the, the story of that's... the comic, which is about suicide, is not overt. Um, it's no. not overt, but it's, it's it's well understood in that neighborhood. They know exactly what I'm talking about. Although maybe another generation in that neighborhood in that part of Ireland will not. They may not read it. They may not be able to read it in that way. But
0: people who are sensitive to that always will be able to.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So last question. Is this sort of been a satisfying life for you being, uh, I don't know if you refer to yourself as an artist, but I'll just um, take that liberty. Being a a photographer, an artist, is this sort of how you imagined? <laughs> Another big question. Is this how you <sighs> imagined it? W- it would be.
2: Oh man.
0: <laughs> you can take a fryer. I didn't mean to. <laughs> I could give you like a few months to think about it and, yeah, and you can really. answer it if another, you want on the next time decade. I interview
2: you. I mean, what? Wow, I don't. I know, know. it's a big.
0: I see. I think about this all the time in in my own Re- life. So do you?
2: And how? Oh, yeah. and, and how do you? Does it keep you up at night?
0: Oh, absolutely. Of course. Really? Totally. Oh,
2: yeah. Um, but there's not much you can do about it, right? Uh, at this point, I mean, you know, we're close to yeah, the same but, age. Uh, but, life is but more I, than two-thirds over. <laughs> um, <but> stop
0: it. <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> don't bring reality into this. Well, yeah, I mean, I can't help it. I mean, it's what I think. I think I'm interested in it. and um, But yeah, I think about it all the time. I mean, not. I don't think I think about it neurotically because it doesn't freak me out. It doesn't get my heart racing because I I feel really proud of a lot of what I've done with my life, and I feel like I've worked really, really hard, and I've been basically a, the kind of person that my mom wanted me to be, a mensch, a decent person. You know, I basically feel good, but do I imagine a life as someone who did more direct stuff that was would be more d- directly helpful to other people? Yes, I think about that a lot. And I do think about what is the value of what I've done.
2: I think everyone does. I mean, you know, it would be lying to say that those those notions have never crossed my mind and that, you know, everybody has regrets and wish they had done this instead of that or um, gave up on a, a project that probably could have been something great or who knows. And I am not the most aggressive of um, artists in the sense of putting myself out there and getting my work in front of all the right people. And I'm socially fairly awkward, especially exhibition openings and such, very, very uncomfortable in those circumstances. And and it hasn't gotten easier. <laughs> it's terrible, but yeah. it really hasn't. Not much. Um, I guess maybe I, I again, I don't, care quite as much, but I have a lot of moments where I like, um, you know, in the shower kind of shudder over, um, something I said or didn't say or something like that. I I do torture myself that way. Sometimes it's not good, but yeah. Is it like what I thought? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I really don't. I don't know what I thought, like, when I was starting to make photographs, what it would be like. I didn't really know anything about the art world or how anything really worked. I just liked to make pictures.
0: That's probably good. I mean, a lot of I think a lot of people now in undergrad and grad are sort of hyper-aware of the art world and have these ideas about what it's going to be like.
2: Uh, even with that training, even if I probably got the training at the early age, I still think I probably would have stumbled uh, as as much as maybe a little less, but not much less than I do now in terms of interfacing with that aspect of the art world. And that that's what it is. I mean, I'm, you know, I turned 60 this year. I'm not going to change that much. I'm not going to get that much better at it. So it's all right. It's all right. I get to talk to people like you, and that's cool. That's cool. I sh- well, I'm grateful for that.
0: I think you um, you probably underestimate the degree to which, you know, your work is known and uh, beloved and appreciated, but I won't end by purposely embarrassing you. So I will just say thank you so much for spending time and talking with me and putting it on tape, tape and quotation marks
2: yeah well thank you this was great um it the time went by really quick so i hope I that's a sign that it was um <laughs> engaging or at least it was yeah, for me it so, was for me too um, and
0: if it wasn't for everyone else then um that's their problem <laughs> all right <laughs> thank all right. you thank you all my right. friend then i will talk
1: to you soon okay all right, all right. bye Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chovan Dalton of Real Photo Show. The executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and our theme music is by Jay Walter Hawks. You can hear Photo Work on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts.